So Lord, we thank you for your word and just pray that you'd speak to our hearts and uh, just be glorified in our midst tonight. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So on Wednesday nights, we find ourselves going through the Bible in overview fashion, one book a week, give or take. That brings us tonight to the book of 1 Samuel. Next week, we're gonna be in the book of 2 Samuel and I'm still looking at what it's gonna look like. Probably what'll happen is we'll wind up doing First and Second Kings in one week and then First and Second Chronicles in, in a week. Um, but First and Second Samuel, if you're wondering why do we have First and Second Samuel, initially it was one book and it was the book of Samuel. Um, but when it was translated from Hebrew to Greek, uh, Hebrew, the way it's written, the way biblical Hebrew is written is the vowels go under the consonants. So if you'd have the consonant and the vowel and the consonant and the vowel and the consonant and the vowel. And Greek reads much more like English where it's all in a line. And so when the Bible was translated into Greek, all of a sudden the book was twice as long. And it wouldn't fit onto one scroll. And so they split it up into two portions, First and Second Samuel. What are you going to do with that information? Probably not too much, but it's good to know once in a while. So the um, so book of Samuel is, most people would say uh, it was at least compiled in part by the prophet Samuel himself. We know he didn't write all of it because we have accounts of what happens after he died. So that's always awkward when you write what happens after you're dead. Um, so most likely Samuel started it, and then probably either the prophet Nathan or the prophet Gad finished it up. But Samuel is a, it's a really interesting book in that we see, you know, you got to remember we're in the historical period of Israel's history now. And so what we're looking at is the nation of Israel has crossed into the Jordan. They conquered a lot of the land, but they didn't really conquer it fully. And they then proceeded, like in the book of Judges, to allow compromise, to allow disobedience into their lives. And then that resulted in discipline from the Lord. That resulted in judgment. That resulted in defeat. And they get in this cycle of, well, we're in defeat. Now we call out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer. That's great until that guy dies. And then we're right back in defeat. And they were having all these, they would have these surface revivals about once a generation. And, um, and the Lord would keep raising up judges for them. He would keep raising up deliverers for them but they weren't really getting it. And Samuel opens up at the end of the period of the judges. And so what we're going to see is uh, really collectively the people t get tired of not getting it, but their response is less than ideal. So Samuel opens up at a very, uh, you know, very dark time in Israel's history. Uh, there's just a lot of moral decay. There's a lot of there's a lot of just bad things going on. If you guys read the book of Judges after we taught on it, uh, you know there's a lot of just awful stuff happening in the book of Judges. But in the midst of that, into that darkness, comes this guy Samuel. And so, um, so really, as we're looking at the book as a whole, trying to look at what can we glean from 1 Samuel, it divides very neatly into three sections. And each one of those sections is headed by really one main character. Okay, so the first section is all about Samuel, the second section is all about Saul, and the third section is all about David. And there's a little bit of overlap, but you can pretty much break it nicely into when each of them makes an appearance on the scene. So Samuel comes in in chapter 1, and Samuel is, you know, he's born uh, in a dark time, but he's also born out of desperation. Samuel has, uh, Samuel's mother was barren, she was unable to conceive, she uh, was married to a man who had two wives, which... Any instance we have of that in the Bible is always uh, a high-maintenance relationship. 
And so there's one wife who's able to have a lot of kids. There's another wife who's not able to have any kids. And the husband in the middle, who's Mr. Sensitive, says, Babe, you've got me. Um, no, he actually says, Am I not better than ten sons? Which is probably not the most sensitive thing you could say. But hey, what do I know? Um, so Samuel's mom, Hannah, is, is desperate for a child. She's desperate. She's got a rival wife who is giving her a hard time about it persistently. She's got a husband who's probably not incredibly sensitive. And there's just, a, you know, there's that desperation, especially it's hard to understand in American culture, but in the ancient world in particular, uh, as a woman, your entire life was tied up in your ability to have children. Uh, and if you couldn't have children, you were really, in effect, worthless. And so uh, it's really hard for us to wrap our heads around because we just, we value things in a, in a different light. But you got to understand, Samuel is born out of desperation. He's born because his mother, in desperation, goes to the tabernacle and she's praying. She says, God, if you will give me a child, I will dedicate him to you. At this point, I'm not asking for a child for myself. I'm asking for a child for your glory. And if you are willing to give me a child, I will dedicate him to you. And we get a glimpse in this into the moral decay of the era because the priest sees Hannah there at the, at the tabernacle praying, and she's praying quietly. Uh, there's no sound coming out, but her mouth is moving, and he makes the assumption that she's drunk, which gives you a window into what the standard fare was at the tabernacle, right? I mean, we had, I was thinking about it this week, we had prayer night on Sunday night, and I guarantee you, if I would have looked up and any one of the ladies there was moving their mouth and I didn't hear words coming out, I would not have assumed, you know, if they would sober up, this, this prayer meeting would really kind of get going. I mean, I just didn't cross my mind. I wasn't thinking about it for any of them there, right? Um, but Eli sees this woman moving her mouth, and he goes over to her um, in chapter 1, verse 14. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah says, no, no, I'm not drunk. I'm desperate for, I'm, you know, I'm, basically I'm praying in desperation. And Eli says, okay, sorry. Uh, may the Lord grant your request. And so that's where Samuel steps into the scene. The Lord answers Hannah's prayer. And, and we often see the Lord answer prayers of desperation. We, you know, so often we live these cushy lives where our prayer is, God, help me to not get a hangnail. God, help me to, you know, help gas prices to go down. And then help, help my life to stay comfortable, right? Help my bubble to not be encroached upon is really what a lot of our prayers are. And there's a big difference between that kind of prayer and a prayer of desperation, Right? There's, there's, a, there's a level of hunger for God to do something. There's that point of, God, if you do not do something right now, I do not know how I move forward. And those are the kind of prayers that God loves to answer because at that point in time, the Lord gets the glory. So Samuel's born. Samuel is dedicated to the Lord. Hannah keeps her promise. Hannah follows through on her word, and Samuel is dedicated to the Lord. He grows up in the tabernacle. He grows up, he gets responsibilities at an early age. We see in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel that the Lord actually calls Samuel. Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord, and then when Samuel's a young man, the Lord really verbally responds and takes Samuel and says, I'm gonna speak to you, Samuel. And you gotta remember, Samuel, you know, he's basically, for lack of a better term, he's an intern, okay? The Lord doesn't speak to the, the high priest. The Lord doesn't speak to either of the high priest's sons. We're told that they're so wicked that the Lord is resolved to kill them. The Lord had made up his mind he's going to destroy them. So the Lord doesn't talk to the top religious leader in the nation or the next two men in line. The Lord picks a kid and says, you know what? 
I, I am done with the hypocrisy of this people. I'm going to pick a person who is willing to listen. And Samuel is a person who's willing to listen and obey to the voice of the Lord. And, we're gonna, and that's really important because the book of Samuel, it, it's a turning point in Israel's history. Israel's going to leave the period of the judges and they're never going to go back. They'll have other problems. They'll have plenty of other problems. But the period of the judges is going to come to an end because there's a person who's willing to listen and obey to the voice of the Lord and that person is Samuel. So Samuel becomes the last judge. He becomes a prophet for the people. The Lord uses him to really restore, uh, really restore the nation of Israel. And we see in chapter 7, actually, Samuel doesn't just deliver the people from their enemies. Okay, at this point in Israel's history, their main enemy was the Philistines. And we're going to see all through 1 Samuel, all through 2 Samuel, or through a lot of 2 Samuel, we're going to see the Philistines come up over and over and over again as the enemy of Israel. And Samuel comes here to the nation of Israel and basically they're saying, hey, we need your help. We need you to lead us. And in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart and remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord alone. So Samuel is not here just to deliver the people. He's not here just to make life smooth. He's not here to cut taxes. He's here to call the people to the Lord. And that's really, in a lot of ways, as we, as we see it unfold, that's going to be a big distinction between Samuel and the other judges, um, or at least a, a large number of the other judges. Samuel says, your issue is not the Philistines. Your issue is you are not serving the Lord. Your issue is you are refusing to really obey. You're giving the Lord this, whatever, 10, 20, 30% pocket of your life and of course you're in defeat. How would you expect the Lord to grant you victory when he's already made a covenant with you? The Lord has made an agreement. The Lord said, if you serve me, you will be, I will protect you. I will drive out your enemies before you. You violated that. You're part of that covenant. Why would you ask the Lord to then follow through on what he's, what he's offered to do? You are basically putting God in a position of having to deal with your sin. So deal with your sin and then watch the victory of the Lord. And it's a message that was true for Israel and it's a message that's true for us today. We cannot expect to walk in victory if we're trying to simultaneously walk in sin. We can't expect God to do great things in our life if we're expecting to try and serve the Lord and or serve the Lord but or serve the Lord mostly. Serve the Lord except, right? You, you can't stick a qualifier on that. You either serve the Lord or you don't serve the Lord. And so Saul, Samuel becomes that leader for the people. He's giving them that call. But, and that's really the first third of the book of First Samuel. But as Samuel gets older, we see, uh, you know, it's, it's part of life. People get older. It just kind of happens. Um, you get mileage on your engine. And Samuel's getting old. His sons aren't really walking with the Lord. And so the people look and the people say, okay, you know what? We've been in this cycle for a long time. We're getting a little tired of the one good judge, he dies, and we go back into defeat. So we need to do something about it, which is absolutely true, right? The people need to do something. They need to break this cycle. They do, they do this 12 times in the book of Judges. Samuel is the 13th time that the people of Israel have needed a deliverer. Now, what's, so they say, we've got to stop this cycle. And the answer is, yes, you do. What is the proper way to stop the cycle? To serve the Lord. Right? Samuel calls into repentance, and evidently some of them did, or not all of them did, but the Israelites are not fully devoted to serving the Lord. 
And so they're saying, we're going to fall into defeat again. And they're right. They're going to fall into defeat again unless something changes. But here's the problem. The correct solution is we need to surrender to the Lord. We need to let the Lord have full control of our nation. Their solution is everybody around us is consolidating power into monarchies. And so instead of being like tribal clans, they're monarchies. Ergo, if we want to stay on top of the game, we need to have a monarchy. We need to get rid of this whole judge system. This judge thing isn't working, to which the correct answer is, you're right, the judge thing is not working. But their solution is, we need a king. We need somebody who's going to be our man, who's going to lead us, who's going to go out before us and, and really step up, step up to the plate for us. And Samuel says, guys, this is not a good idea. And they say, no, no, we're, we're pretty positive. We, we know that this cycle has got to end. And Samuel goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, Samuel, don't take it personal. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. The Lord says, these people are rejecting me. They are demanding a king their way. Now, interestingly, and we're going to see this in 1 Samuel, we see this really throughout the entire scriptures, and that is that when people demand their own way, the Lord almost always lets them have it. When people say, God, I will only accept whatever, X, Y, or Z, on these terms, usually the Lord will let that happen. The Lord is, is gracious enough to allow you to make a fool of yourself if you are adamant that you want to. If you want to destroy your life, the Lord will let you. If you want to take away all the blessings of the Lord, he will let you. If you want to sow uh, seeds of consequence in your life that are going to bring judgment, he'll let you do that. And so the people say, we want a king now. And the Lord says, okay. The Lord says, Samuel, here's what you're going to do. You're going to pick a king. I'm going to tell you who to pick. You're going to pick Saul. So we move into then the second main passage of the book of 1 Samuel. We get introduced to Saul in chapter 8. Um, well, in chapter 8, when they ask for their king, chapter 9, we meet the, person, meet the person Saul. Saul's chosen by the Lord. He becomes the first king of Israel. Saul is, uh, he's, you know, people say, you know, you can, the best way to learn is from experience, but it doesn't always have to be your experience, right? Uh, Saul is one of those people, you can almost, you can learn more from Saul than from a ton of other characters in scripture. And almost everything Saul did is a perfect picture of what to not do with your life. Uh, Saul is really like Samson, and, and really the two of them are probably the two characters who have the greatest wasted potential in scriptures. Saul's chosen by God. Saul at one point gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesies. Uh, he has, you know, the voice of God is speaking through him. Saul becomes king. Saul, we're told, is not only king, he's also good looking. He's also tall, which statistically makes people like you. It's just a fact, election, random fact. In presidential elections, the taller candidate almost always wins. Uh, it's, it's a little bit creepy how fickle we are as Americans, but the tall candidates win. Um, Saul's tall. Saul's good looking. Saul's a dynamic leader. Says he, he blows the trumpet and rallies the troops and he gets 300,000 men to come fight with him when he needs to go to war. Saul can do all these things, but Saul is a self-reliant man. Saul is self-reliant. Saul puts his confidence in Saul. 
And as a result, he's one of the greatest tragedies in all of Scripture. Saul refuses to surrender his heart to the Lord. Saul refuses to walk in obedience to the Lord. Saul refuses to do things any way other than his way. And that's the character of Saul. But, so just to give us kind of just a couple examples, I think just to help us sort of put it in context, all right? So again, during this time period, Israel's got a primary enemy. That's the Philistines. And throughout all this period, the Philistines are the enemy. So guess who's coming against Israel? It's the Philistines. Saul's got a problem. His army at this point in time is smaller than the Philistine army. And Samuel said, I'll meet you in seven days. We'll offer to the Lord and then we'll go to war. Saul says, okay. He waits. First day, second day, third day, fourth day. Gets the seventh day and Samuel hasn't showed up yet. And Saul's army starts to panic. They start trickling out. They're deserting one at a time. Saul's sitting around, you know, he knows how many, roughly how big the Philistine army is. He's looking around at his army thinking this is not shaping up to be a good situation. I better do something. So um, chapter 13, verse 8, if you want to flip there, we'll, we'll read it. Um, it says, now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering, and he offered the burnt offering. Now, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, there's 12 tribes of Israel. Saul was chosen from the tribe of Benjamin. The Lord explicitly said, and made it very clear on multiple occasions, the only tribe that can offer sacrifices is the tribe of Levi. So Saul is not allowed to do this according to the law of God. But Saul says, hey guys, we, you know, we got to improvise here, right? Verse 10, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Samuel comes, Saul says, hey Sam, how's it going? I'm ready to go. Let's go to war. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the appointed days, you know, you were late, pal. And the Philistines were assembling. Therefore, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I haven't asked for favor of the Lord. I haven't prayed yet. I had to do something. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know, it was a fight, Samuel. It really was. But I rose to the occasion and I forced myself and we offered the burnt offering even though the Lord said not to, but I knew I had to because this was an exception to the law of the word of God. Right? And Samuel says, no. Samuel said to Saul, verse 13, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now that's a pretty hefty consequence for what doesn't seem like that huge of a deal. I mean, Saul, put yourself in the, in the same situation. You're trying to lead a group of people into war, your people are deserting. You know what to do to rally them together. You just know that you're not technically allowed to do it. And so what do you do? You improvise. You, you make it work, right? You find a way to make it happen. And, and, but it goes against the word of the Lord. And Samuel says, here's the deal, Saul. Had you chosen to wait on the word of the Lord, to trust the word of the Lord could stand, the Lord would have been willing to establish your family forever as the kingly tribe over Israel. But he's not going to. You just sacrificed 
When you offer that sacrifice, you sacrifice your right to have your family line persist in, as the monarchs. So the Lord is going to take the kingdom away from you and he's going to give it to, he says, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. So the Lord is going to find a man after the Lord's own heart. In case you're thinking, wow, that's a little harsh for, you know, one slip up and you're done. Um, in chapter 15, we get to watch Saul do a very similar thing all over again. The Lord comes to Saul and says, the Lord comes to Samuel and says, go to Saul and tell him, I want you to destroy the Amalekites. I want you to go and wipe out everything that breathes, which is a fairly straightforward command, right? It's fairly black and white. The Lord gives reasons for it. It's not just random genocide. It's very pointed. It's for a very specific reason, okay? So Samuel goes to Saul and says, here's what you need to do. Kill everything that breathes. Saul says, okay, got it. And so it says um, in chapter 15, verse 7, so Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as you're going to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. So the Lord says, go destroy everything. And Saul says, got it. And Saul proceeds to then go destroy everything that doesn't have a dollar value assigned to it. Saul proceeds to interpret the word of the Lord in a way that kind of, you know, pads his own wallet, in a way that makes things a little bit cushier for him. But then the Lord comes to Samuel and, and the Lord just, you know, the Lord really is brokenhearted over this. Like, I now have a leader who is refusing to obey me. He's setting a precedent for the people. And so then Samuel goes to confront Saul. And Samuel came to Saul in verse 13. And Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. Saul says, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I did what you told me. I did it. And Samuel said to Saul, then what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the, the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, oh, they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we've utterly destroyed. Saul says, you know what? They were all a little lax. I know, I was fully obedient, but they were a little lax. But don't worry, it's all for the Lord, right? We're disobeying for Jesus, right? And... That's Saul's approach to life. Saul's approach is, I can do whatever I want as long as it's, you know, quasi-spiritual. And Samuel says, no, you don't understand. The Lord said to do this, and you didn't. And he says in, in, chapter, in verse 22 of chapter 15, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Samuel says, you know what? The Lord really doesn't care about your shows. He really doesn't care about your performance, you know, and as we're looking at 1 Samuel and trying to apply it to our lives, the Lord really doesn't care about our performance. He doesn't care about your church attendance per se. He doesn't care about your tithing. He doesn't care about whether you go through the right steps or the right procedures. Those things are important in their own right because the Lord does command them. But what does the Lord care about? Obedience. The Lord cares about whether or not you are willing to say, the word of God told me to do something, therefore I'm doing it regardless of what the culture says, what the financial implications are, what the economic implications or the 
just, you know, the general cultural pressure, whatever's going on, the Lord doesn't care. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Saul is rebelling against the word of the Lord. And elsewhere in scripture, the Lord says rebellion is like witchcraft in the eyes of the Lord. Rebellion, refusing to obey the Lord, is on par with trying to assume demonic powers in the eyes of God. So the Lord takes this very seriously. And so the Lord's going to remove the kingdom from Saul. But Saul's still king. And so the Lord says, all right, I'm gonna, so he, he then tells Samuel, I'm going to anoint a new king. I'm going to pick a new king. And this time, what's interesting is, you know, put it in context, hundreds of years before, Jacob had prophesied to his sons that there would be a king. He said this, he, was, he made a prophecy to his son Judah about a scepter arising, a scepter being in Judah. And a scepter is a symbol of royalty. So there's a prophecy that implies that there's going to be a king. And so Israel had always been building towards this. But here's the problem. The Lord had a king in mind. The Lord had a king that he was going to bring to pass. The people said, we need a king now. The Lord said, we need a king right now. And so the Lord gave him an available candidate, and that was Saul. Saul's going to be king for 40 years. The Lord's choice is the guy we're going to read about in the last third of the book of Samuel. The Lord's choice was David. But when the people said, we want a king now, David hadn't even been born. So the people say, we want a king now, and we demand that God meet our expectations or else. The Lord says, okay. So the people get what they asked for, but it was not the Lord's choosing. And so now we get to see the Lord's choosing. And remember, in chapter 13, we said when, when Saul offers that sacrifice, Samuel says, hey, you know what? The Lord's really looking for a man after his own heart. The Lord's looking for a guy who's going to be chasing after the heart of God. More so than a tall guy, more so than a good-looking guy or a great military leader. The Lord's looking for somebody after his own heart. And so Samuel goes and anoints David as king. And, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a little bit of a kind of a classic line, but it's a great reminder for us that Saul was, one of the reasons, among the reasons that Saul was chosen, Saul was super capable, he was super good-looking, all of that. Samuel goes to the town of Bethlehem and he meets this guy Jesse and he says I want you to bring all your sons I need to talk to him and Jesse brings his sons and the first one goes by and Samuel thinks that has got to be the one that God has in mind right I mean he's 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 like he's everything you could want in a king and the Lord says I've rejected that one I don't have to, I, that one I, I, I'm not going to use and he, the Lord says in chapter 16 verse 7 don't look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's, a, it's, a, it's really, in a lot of ways, one of the most basic ideas uh, that if you can believe in God, you can believe that God sees at a different level than we do, right? And when we can understand that God is looking at character and he's looking at you know, people who are willing to serve him and obey him, but we lose sight of that so often. Because we're image-oriented people. We always love to find the attractive or the beautiful or whatever. That's not what the Lord's looking for. The Lord is looking for people who know him. The Lord is looking for people who are willing to obey him. People like Samuel who are willing to listen and obey to the voice of the Lord. And <clears throat> you know what? If you're gorgeous or whatever, great. That's a fantastic perk. But that's not what drives your relationship with the Lord. So... Samuel goes through seven sons, and each time the Lord tells Samuel, uh, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are these all your kids? Because I asked you to bring your kids. 
And Jesse says, yeah, I've got one more son, but he doesn't really count, right? Uh, so I just left him at work. I know you, like, the prophet comes to town and says, I want to meet you and your sons. So I left one of them out because he was, you know, whatever. Obviously, you didn't want to have anything to do with him. And Sam says, no, no, nobody sits down for dinner until he gets here. So they go, David comes in, and the Lord says, that's the one. That's the one I want. I wanted the youngest kid in the batch, the least honored person in this family. I want the one whose dad, frankly, thinks he's uh, either free labor or disposable, depending on how you want to look at it, right? Depending on how nice of a spin you want to put on it. Uh, That's the one I want. God is not looking for the impressive people to further his kingdom. God is looking for, you know, average, ordinary Joe schlups because that's who he likes to use because then he gets all the credit. So the Lord is going to use David. And so David becomes anointed. In chapter 17, David kills Goliath. It's really one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. David goes up against the giant who's somewhere between 9 and 11 feet tall, depending on how you interpret some of the ancient measurements. Uh, David's a kid. But it's a great story of David walking in faith, walking in trust uh, that the Lord is capable. Because Goliath is this Philistine champion. Philistines are there. Philistines say, we've got a great idea. We'll do a one-on-one combat, winner-take-all scenario. And uh, here's our guy. He's 11 foot tall. Uh, Who's your best guy? And we know that Saul's the tallest guy in the Israelite army, but evidently Saul wasn't up to volunteering. So for 40 days... Goliath comes out, offers the challenge, who wants to go for it with me today? You know, we'll do three rounds or whatever, and nobody comes forward. And so after 40 days, David goes to check on three of his brothers who are in the army, and he hears this guy, Goliath, give the challenge. And David says, this guy is insulting the Lord's name. Why are we not all volunteering right now? David says, this guy is daring to defy the God of Israel and we're scared of him? God is going to defend his name. Why should any of us have fear right now about what's going to happen? God will stand up and defend his name. So sure, I'll go. And you see the leadership structure in the camp. They're like, well, we finally got a volunteer. We got to do something with him, right? But he's a kid, so we really can't do anything with him. So they're kind of stuck in this little in-between. What do we do? And David, uh, I love his, just kind of his humility with it. He's like, hey, listen. Uh, this whole scene's taunted in the armies of God. So the Lord's going to take care of this. And by the way, if it matters, um, I did kill a lion and a bear recently, barehanded. But, um, you know, there's just this great little humility in David's approach. Like, God is going to do this. Uh, I also did go after a lion with a rock, and I won. Um, so David kills the, kills the giant. David becomes a general in Saul's army because Saul says... I want this guy on my side for now. So David, you know, the Lord starts doing stuff in David's life. David's becoming a leader. He's learning how to lead militarily. He's learning, he's, you know, he's, he's having influence at court. And then what we start to see is God withdraws his blessing from Saul and gives it to David because Saul has removed himself from the covering of God's blessing. And so Saul becomes paranoid and jealous and he starts trying to kill David. So he... Uh, he chucks a spear at David twice. Saul's evidently a bad aim with a spear. We have at least three accounts where he misses. Um, so he misses David twice. And David decides, this is getting a little bit old. And so David flees town. David will wind up being on the run for his life for the next decade while Saul chases after him trying to kill him because Saul becomes paranoid about David trying to steal the throne. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
we're going to, David gets anointed in chapter 16. 1 Samuel is 31 chapters long. So for 16 chapters, David has been anointed king. David doesn't become king until 2 Samuel chapter 1. For 16 chapters, David has the call of God on his life. David knows that God said, you are going to be king, but he's not yet. And he's got to live with a paranoid, maniacal man chasing after him, trying to murder him for 10 years, right? The favorite man in court is now all of a sudden the urban legend of what happens when you disobey the king, right? He's the picture of the rebel in a bad way. David spends 10 years running. Why do you think David spent that time, right? He had the anointing of God on his life. So what was going on? God, God called him, but, but what, right? But what? What's going on for those 10 years? And the answer is God called him, and God's implementing a king his way, right? People demanded a king. God said, fine, here's Saul, go. And then God says, all right, now I'm going to bring about a king my way. And God's way of bringing a person to a full point of being ready to be used by him, right? And we, of, of creating a person who's gonna be a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart is very often to allow them to suffer. I mean, every, you know, and, and I mean, just, you know, oftentimes the Lord gives us the physical realities of life to give us metaphors about uh, spiritual realities. And so we understand just on a physical level, pain, pressure, Removal, those things bring growth and purity, right? How do you purify gold? You heat it up to a couple thousand degrees and smash it, right? How do you, how do you cause a tree to bear more fruit? You cut it off till it looks like it's dead. How do you do, you know, how do you get a great view? You climb the mountain. We understand these things on a physical reality, but they're every bit, if not vastly more true on a spiritual level. The Lord wants to use David in an amazing way. And so he spends 10 years really breaking David down so he can build him back up. And you can say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Truthfully, it's probably the most spiritually uh, rich time of David's life. We're going to see in 2 Samuel, David gets a little, David's a great guy. David's, David's a fantastic character. But David also gets a little soft and uh, gets some serious issues later in life because things get comfortable. So he can kind of kick back. When David's running for his life, David doesn't have much choice except to depend on the Lord or die. Right? It's a fairly straightforward uh, equation, right? One or the other. And so he depends on the Lord. And, and in that, I think, you know, A, there's, there's beautiful lessons for our lives, right? So if you are called by God, and every person in this room has been called by God, right? God has called each one of us to be part of his kingdom, each one of us to be part of what he's doing. So don't be... A, surprised, or B, discouraged if suffering comes into life. Life is hard. Life will often be harder for Christians than for non-Christians, okay? But God is refining us. He's purifying us. And in the midst of that suffering, remember, if you're a Christian, this is, this life in the most utmost agony that you can endure is the closest to hell you will ever get, right? If you refuse the Lord, this life in all of its splendor is the closest to heaven you'll ever get. So we can suffer right now. 
And that doesn't make it fun. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't, we're not denying the reality of it, but we also understand what it is, and it's a shadow. It's a shadow that's passing away because we're passing away. Our lives are passing, and we're going to pass into glory. And so David gets that, and, and we can glean all these lessons from David's life in that sense. But simultaneously, as we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel, we see a bit of a picture of Jesus Christ in here. We see that Jesus is, was God's best for his people. Jesus was God's plan, God's plan of redemption, God's plan of the real king. But the people didn't want to receive it, right? The Israelites didn't want Jesus to come in and disrupt their system. The Israelites didn't want Jesus to, uh, to teach them about loving their enemies. They wanted Jesus to fix their problems now because they said, we're sick of this cycle. You know, we've been conquered by the Greeks and we've been conquered by the Syrians. We've been conquered by the Romans. We're sick of it and we want to be a king now. And the shift was, the Lord said, no, I'm giving you Jesus Christ. Here he is. And in very much the same way that David was anointed by God and yet not received by his own people, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? How much more chosen and called by God? He's the Son of God. He's God himself. And his own people didn't recognize him. And so we see that simultaneously, uh, David becomes a lesson for us, but also in a lot of ways, a picture or an illustration of what's coming in Jesus Christ. That's 1 Samuel, all right? We see that God is always looking to bring light into darkness. We see that God really has no use for a self-reliant person. And we see that when God calls somebody, there's a hardness associated with that, but there's also a richness associated with that. Okay, if you flip through the Psalms, uh, a lot of the Psalms have a little heading that kind of gives you some context. And some of the Psalms for, that David wrote during this period are intense, right? They're powerful, and he's pouring out praise to the Lord in the midst of running for his life. Some of the richest scripture we have, the most encouraging scriptures we have, came out of David's 10 years on the run, right? Because God is refining, God is shaping, God is molding David's life in, this, in that season. And God is doing the exact same thing in our lives today because God wants to be able to present us holy and pure and undefiled, right? He wants us to be brought closer to him. And to do that, he's gonna chip away all the parts of our flesh that are holding us back. That's First Samuel. Next week, it's gonna find us in Second Samuel where we're gonna watch more of David. And uh, see some highs and we'll see some lows. And... Uh, but it's, it, it's rich. David has a rich life of a guy who's chosen and called by God. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you just for all the, the intense application and the, the practical, uh, just ground level lessons that we can learn from it. We pray that it would go deep into our hearts, that we would grow from it, that we would grow closer to you, that we would know you more. God, I pray that we would embrace your word. Please fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Please move in our hearts and in our lives. Use us for your kingdom. Use us as that light in the darkness. Help us to go forth with, with boldness, knowing that you're with us so that you'll defend your name. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.